Welcome to the Human Design Collective Podcast, where we explore this system as a unique map of our potential, from the mundane to the mystical. If you're looking to dive deeper into human design, join our Living Your Design Workshop, offered live online June 12th and 26th, 2021, with John Cole and Amy Lee. Rave ABCs will be offered again this fall, and registration is now open for Rave Cartography, beginning July 21st, 2021. For more information on foundation courses and workshops, go to courses.humandesigncollective.com. Today we're talking with Barbara Ditlow, a certified human design analyst, coach, and teacher who's a gifted listener and highly skilled at guiding her clients both personally and professionally. She's a 2-4 self-projected projector who shares stories about Ra and Eckhart Tolle, her early life as a projector and extensive experience with manifestors, as well as her view on the value and evolution of human design, among many other things. It was a true pleasure to experience her depth and unique voice, and we hope you enjoy the conversation. When I worked with Ra, I also worked with Eckhart Tolle. So Eckhart, I mean, they were so different, but Eckhart had a really strong frequency. I mean, the light would come out of his eyes. Literally, I'd never seen anything like it in some of his students. And when we, when my ex and I, you know, would meet with him, it was amazing. When I sponsored him in New York, I had some of my clients, my ex-husband, my husband before that, my son, you know, everybody in the front row, because back then it was still women that were the forefront of the consciousness evolution. I mean, Sam Keen did Fire in the Belly in the 90s, and he kind of began the idea of the, the man's group. But Eckhart came in, not as this stud, but as someone, as he said, why would anyone come and look at me? You know, he was funny. But what was interesting, because he was a non-dualist, and Ra was all about being the dualist, that what I found most fascinating was that when I worked with Eckhart, something happened to me because he, he had the Shaktipat quality, you know, people that he worked with. I don't know if that changed the frequency because it's just a frequency. And Ra was about being in the illusion and Eckhart was about transcending the illusion, you know, through frequency because they were, you know, born within like three weeks of each other. And then I was born right after that, you know, bumping into them, so to speak, was fascinating because they were both awake, but very differently, you know, very different. But they were both fives. They were both fives and they were both pure individuals, which was interesting. And Eckhart is a three five manifesting generator. So it was interesting to see how those frequencies, you know, are expressed through a person then impact other people. So I don't know if that changed the quad left, quad right or whatever. But John, you can probably speak to it that as a I don't I haven't seen your chart, <laughs> but John, I saw yours. And I thought, whoa, you're pretty open. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that must have been hard. Was that difficult for you growing up before? I mean, your mom taught you astrology or you learned at a young age. Did that help? Yeah, it helps. Yeah, my mom was into astrology and I got into it in my early 20s. And mm-hmm. that was like one of the first things that I had found that started helping me make sense of things. I met with her astrologer and kind of went into it skeptical, not really knowing what I was getting myself into. And by the end of that session, I was like, okay, this person has some insight into my inner world and my life and my, the events in my life that nobody should have. It it really struck me. Like I have to have access to this knowledge or understand how he's, you know, how he's doing this. 
And so that was a big piece of it. And, and that was really helpful. It's starting to give me, you know, a point of reference, but it really wasn't until human design, finding out that I was a projector and seeing all that openness and the process that started with that, everything started really clicking. And I was like, okay, now I'm starting to understand <laughs> some of these early life experiences and the things that I had been feeling and the patterns that I had in my life. But it was really hard. Yeah, I, I had really no idea what was going on for a while. And I grew up in a family of three generators and I'm, I'm surrounded by generators everywhere in my life. Gossip or does it give you energy? Both, yeah. I can feel the buzz and the energy. I can feel like the root pressure. That's another thing that's very palpable around people with defined roots. At the same time, it's really easy to kind of go overboard to kind of push myself too far. And, you know, and it's usually when I get out of aura that I feel like I can return to a, a more natural state of energy or being that's more correct for me. But when I'm in it, yeah, I'm just usually amplifying it and going. That would be my experience because now my son, his wife, and his daughter lives with me. So I've got three emotional generators, you know, in the house. And the way I describe it is you can never really deeply relax the way projector does because there's always that ambient energy that gives you that edge. <laughs> that's what I wondered because I thought for projectors, the most challenging phase in their life, if they don't know human design as a childhood, because they can so easily be misunderstood by themselves. <laughs> yeah, I thought there was something wrong with me. I felt very different, you know, individual sense of alienation. But, you know, why can't I do what everyone else is doing? Why can't I keep up with these guys? And why don't I have the, the drive and the motivation that, you know, the people around me do? Mm -hmm. Or the, or what I saw is the certainty that people have with my open head Najna, you know, and so I was doing the whole chasing kind of false certainty for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and then finally, it was really human design and understanding my design and my chart that really opened all that up and kind of freed me in a way, but kicked off a you know, pretty intense process of deconditioning. Mm -hmm. And you have the second tone in your personality son, right? I do. So it's designed to navigate uncertainty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we both are color uh, two and tone two, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then I'm sun, I'm two, 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 you know, which is, which is a trip. I'm the sphinx, so the sun is in gate two, line two, color two, and tone two. So then this sort of influences the quad left as well. I mean, there's so many layers to this. Huh. But it's interesting, when I saw your two twos, I wish I had your chart. I'll look at it next time. <laughs> and I know when I saw the two twos, I said, okay, okay, this is going to be fun. <laughs> yeah, um, let me, I'll show you Amy's real quick. Ah, it's 2343. Oh, bless you, Amy. <laughs> oh, my God, you have the 6124. Do you hear that grinding away, John, when Amy's with you? Mm -hmm. You mean right here? <laughs> It's so funny because when my son and daughter-in-law were, were getting pregnant, I said, please don't have him during these months because you'll either end up with a 6124 or the 360. Yeah. <laughs> Something beyond, beyond reason. <laughs> Amy, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, as a mental projector, when you were dropped off at school, how did that feel walking into the auras of all the other children? I think it probably felt nerve-wracking and scary underneath. I really was just such a energetic, 
reflecting force as a child. Mm -hmm. I just sort of would walk in and immediately be on as a sort of performing to the, the structure and the expectations and the using all the energy that was around me. I can remember times walking in alone. If it was quiet, if there wasn't anything going on and there would be a little kind of nervousness. You know, it's, it's interesting that your Venus is in, looks like it's in Virgo, all about, you know, recuperation. Mm-hmm. So probably have a quick recovery as Aquarian, a little horn going in there, rallying the troops. Wow. So we can get on, but I've got a question because with both of your charts, how do two projectors work together? I've always been around generators, rarely projectors. So when Ma said type to type, it's usually the best. How do you find, you know, your relationship? Because both kind of are extreme because it's rare that you see the, you know, the ego projector, you know, the initiator and mental projectors are rare too. How do you find your relationship flowers your own personal development? I have kind of a, an interesting life experience because I've found myself around projectors most of my life. My, ho- my whole birth family is projectors. My sister, both my parents, mm. my sister's entire family now is all projectors. I've talked with other mental projectors to find out if this is the case and I haven't found a consistency there. But for me, I feel like I've always attracted projectors. I've had, always had a lot of projectors in my life. With our work and the way that we work together, I think there's a kind of the way that Ra talked about the proto- certain protocols don't feel necessary type to type. Mm-hmm. Protocols aren't, don't need to be sort of as formal. And I do feel that in our working relationship, there's just a sort of flow and there's mm-hmm. an interesting energy because we have an eight in one connection chart. So uh, the energetic centers, the way they come together, it's a very interesting experience when you have two different people bringing something to create a certain kind of energy. So it's lighter, mm-hmm. but it does bring in an energy. It's not the same to me as when I'm with a generator, mm-hmm. but there's a way that it feels like we're both part of the energy. Mm-hmm. And that's different for me in most of my interactions with generators. For all the definition, you know, in the relationship chart, it still feels pretty open and spacious. There's a very complementary aspect to it where you know, we both really show up as projectors with different characteristics, different things we bring to the table. Obviously my ego and my will is a force and the dynamic and Amy's ability with like you have with the 4323 and to be able to explain and structure things. And so we've been like doing a lot of co-teaching. Amy is much better at, at explaining, structuring and delivering something, but I can do everything else. And then I can kind of support that. And so we've been finding these interesting dynamics where we can kind of play to our strengths. It's like this, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, like the whole idea of a quantum, I guess. And yeah, no, that's nice. That's nice. It looks, it looks very rich. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Combo. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about something you said earlier of how hard it is for projectors as children. I was just talking with a student who is taking some of the family practice courses and she was saying that the teacher had just said something about how intense it is for a projector child to come into the world. And she's a mental projector also. She said, oh, when the teacher said this, it made me so sad. And I said, well, was it true for you? 
that it was hard for you as a child. She's like, I don't remember feeling that way, but there's some sort of like deep sadness that is just here with me since she said it. So I'm wondering if you can say more about what you meant by that, those early years as a projector. Yeah, I think that again, it's all about awareness that if you haven't, see I'm a prodigal, if you haven't gone back, I would say it's you're 10, you've experienced something with this, something happens, it gets concretized somewhere in your body and it, you kind of compartmentalize rather than integrate it, you move on. And so the hurts just are in this context, I've got to survive. I've got to try to be something to fit in with them. And so until the deconditioning process I found hits a certain tone, you may not be safe in identifying that maybe you were sad, maybe you were rejected, maybe these things happened. And so the key thing that I find the most difficulty with people born after 1988 is they're very impatient because they've been conditioned to have instant information at their fingertips. So they think deconditioning and they think information is evolution. It's only one part of it. And so for someone to say, well, I feel you know sad, it doesn't mean that the life didn't have meaning. It means that you were never designed to be in the group the way you saw other people in the group. And therefore you'd always overcompensate or do something to get in the group that would begin to build up the not self even stronger. And from the context that projectors are designed to be more conditioned than any other type, that's the first problem. And the second problem is that everything has been social. Now it's interesting with projectors with this whole digital world and you know, separate from people, they don't get the energy. They don't get the energy. So I found that I will look at my life and say, what the heck was I thinking? How in the world did this happen? You know, going through all the different stages of life. And it becomes a comedy after a while because it pulls me more and more into no choice. You know, that things are set in stone. And I love Paramahansa Yogananda, his teacher Sri Yukteswar, when he said 75% in stone, 25% if you do your spiritual practice. And even working with Eckhart, he was always giving awareness to people within the illusion. He would speak to that. So I think with projectors, they tend to, because their aura is so focused, they tend to take things in very, very deeply. So the awareness process for them is very different. The, the waking up process is very different. I always have said that projectors don't really get the essential nature of any concept until they go down to the basement, until all the other pieces are put in, and then they get the aha. Whereas generators, they got the energy, they got the information, they're going out there. But it's not the same depth. It doesn't have that same, woof, that same voluptuous, deep, resonant quality. I may be prejudiced because I'm a projector. <laughs> How about for you as a child? What was your experience like? in terms of deconditioning and energy and. Well, it was interesting. I was one of six children, but I was fifth. So if you're looking at Western astrology, the fifth child goes right in the first house of both parents. So I was sort of the synthesis of both parents and they both projected on me, but I was raised with four manifestors. Let's see, there were four, my father was the emotional manifester. My brother was a 12, 22 manifester. My other sister was an alpha and a 2145 manifester. And my other one was a 41 to the 2145. 
and all of my four siblings all had the 2145. That was very powerful because I learned to say nothing. <laughs> so all that came out in school. I, so the pressure was released in school. So it's very interesting in my clients. I have lots of manifestors. I think most of my clients are manifestors because I'm so comfortable with manifestors. I slept with my sister till I was 14 because we didn't have money for, you know, beds for us. And she was a cross of tension manifestor three, five. I'm very used to that aura, you know, the fractal. So for me, understanding that I shouldn't go out and manifest was like, what are you talking about? Because I have the 12 and then I have the 36 and then I have the 45. So any transit or anything, you know, can be activated. For me, it was, it, in a way, it was a blessing, but there was no warmth in the family because you consider three manifested children, projector child, and then there were two generators. But my oldest was always different from the family because she was born in 1940. So from 1936 to 1941, there was that change in the programming in the sun, you know, in rave cosmology. So she was imprinted very differently. So I'm looking to see if her grandchild ends up being a rave, you know, because Ra was fascinated on that link of the different programming from 1936 to 19, I think 1941. And she is different. She's wild. She's like a wild animal, very successful, but a wild animal. So I grew up in a zoo. <laughs> it was amazing, but they were all brilliant. That was a problem too. They were all, most of them Mensa and all five of them were right minds and right brain. I was left. So the one thing that I noticed in the family that they never had to study and they always got everything real easily. And, and my teachers would tell me, Barbara, you know, you came from a bright family and you are by far the hardest worker, <laughs> you know, because I would always have to study three or four hours to get something. Whereas they would just say, oh, I've got a test. And an hour before they'd look at it and they said, that was my experience. It almost gave me a wonderful experiential background for different types, for different nodal configurations and, you know, emotional and the 1222, whoa, is that difficult? I get a lot of 1222s. Yeah. Can you say more about that? What do you see about that channel in particular? It's heaven or hell, but mostly hell, unless it's, unless it's channeled into music or some sort of art that they really possess. And then it is by far the strongest wave. And anger is very hard for them because it's a chemistry that comes in. And boy, when my brother was at Juilliard, all he wanted to do was compose songs to reflect anger. You know, I want to know what anger is. <laughs> I mean, and growing up with him around, oh my God. So it was interesting. He was a 5-1 manifestor when I met Ra. I kept my distance because I could feel the manifestor energy. I could feel the anger. I could feel the triggers, the potential triggers with him, just because I've been so conditioned by that 5-1 manifestor energy. He didn't have the 12-22. He had the 12, but not the 22. You know, you could see that anger was there until his death, because a friend and I had written him an email. And when he, when he sent the email back, he says, Richard Rudd's a traitor, Chet and Parker, traitor. I mean, the whole thing he was going down was traitor, traitor. You know, I don't know who the hell you are. It was almost an ode to the 12-22. I don't know if it was activated then, but this was three days before he passed. So you never get rid of that anger as a manifester. 
and I'll just share this and I'll be quiet. I, I, I love this conversation. So I got a, a notice from one of my students and she's a love and she's like this top, what do you call cyclist, you know, who does cycling classes. And she's an incredible student. She's a manifester with the uh, 1648, the 1222 and the 4425. So she wrote me this morning and it's it's absolutely perfect describing the 1222 and she did a whole podcast on how much human design helped her understand the 1222 and it was very important for her you know whatever and so she writes me this email and it happened in a, a spin class right here it's entitled anger if you can see it it's anger <laughs> it says, hey barbara i taught a class yesterday and got very angry at a writer who clearly didn't want to be there or listen to anything that was saying in class. My highest HR has been 191, according to my WHOOP, W-H-O-P. And yesterday I reached a high of 198 and was 90 to 100% of my max HR for 19 minutes. Wow. To give you something to compare that to, it's usually under five minutes in an anaerobic state in my max HR. Now she's a techie. So she says, what's disturbing to me is I could sense that I was getting irritated, but had no idea that my heart was racing, you know, chemically. There's a history of heart problems in my family. My dad had sextuple bypass surgery after a series of minor heart attacks that he misread his panic attacks. My grandfather had a heart transplant. So you can see the genetic continuity. I know we've discussed my feeling discomfort in my job as of late. And I'm wondering if you have any insight here. My father was very young when he died from the heart attack. I've attached my stats for you. Anything that comes up would be helpful to help me with this anger that's totally unpredictable and just takes me hostage. So that's an example of the 1222. And even though she's been maybe a year in the deconditioning process, it is deep within her and she doesn't know the trigger. So I go back to raw. I could feel all those potential triggers because I was so used to being around manifestors growing up in that particular channel or any manifester, that anger, it can turn on a dime and I would receive it and open my body would shake and whatever. It's just interesting. That's why as projectors, we're very fortunate to be able to observe <laughs> and decipher. <laughs> Barbara, you mentioned the channel, the prodigal in the context of your birth penta, your family that you grew up in. Do you feel like that mythology that's associated with the channel of the prodigal fit with your experience? Oh, absolutely. It's almost as though I look at the prodigal as memory collection, and then I'm able to express it. I can go back to when I was 12 months. You know, the, the neural network that connects to the memory is very different. I can see why some people can't remember anything. And I look back, some of them are extreme joy some of them were very difficult. And, and the one thing about the prodigal is you hear oftentimes what's not being said. You hear what's not being said. Mm -hmm. And so it's almost, you know, the space between the notes. If you're a musician and you're doing a phrase and you're reaching a high, and then there's a pause, and then you wait to take the instrument back, it's that pause that creates the beauty of the piece between the two phrases. And that's the same thing with the prodigal. And when I listen, like an electromagnetic connection, can't move from it. Because I could listen to both of your stories, five hours, I'd be energized. Because what happens 
in the memory network, if I were to describe it, there's like a thread and I hear the story and then all of a sudden there's a change in frequency and there's an intensity there and I want to go back and explore it. And then there's sort of a, a collection of all these fragments and then they're woven together. And then I go back and ask the person a question because I can string all these things, what they've said to me in a very different fabric. You know, it's almost like a quilt. They see it one way and then I see it another way. Yeah. So I think this is why as a projector, I love one-on-one -on -one readings. I can see, actually hear, but I see through hearing <laughs> where their issue is. And it's not me. You know, that's why I always say to people, it's not you. You've got to shift aside and understand that the frequency is moving through you. If you can watch it, you can capture it better. And not capture it, but your point of attention changes. And so when I listen, I know that people... They put the experiences together in a certain way, but a higher frequency puts the facts out and then I'm just here to readjust and tweak it. Sort of like a memory chiropractor. <laughs> <laughs> Go back out. <laughs> Get that spine erect. <laughs> Get your story straight. <laughs> As an aside, you know, I'm a real estate broker, but my son is on the the cross of the unexpected. And he's a four six. And you know, in his astrological chart, you know, he's a Virgo rising Aquarius, but he has two grand trines and the moon is in the 10th house. You know, he's got Venus, Pluto, Saturn, all in the grand trine. So I would say, Matthew, you know, real estate is, is really your thing. And because he's quad right. So when I was in real estate, I did well, but I was everybody's therapist. You know, they come to me and we'd start talking about this and the husband and why. Uh, I mean, so I did well. But then my son comes in, who's emotional generator, four, six, cross the unexpected. He goes right to the top because his design provided the, the energy, the predictability of no choice and the environment for him to just rise to the top. His, his uh, environment is markets. So what's interesting, so when I would listen to him, I would hear him say, well, I can't do it. I'm not interested. I don't want to do it. So when I would hear, I would pick out all these different things and be able to reframe it to just get him to the next level. You know, just wait, wait to respond. Don't interpret this. You're on the trajectory. Your timing isn't now. The flower, don't rip the petals off before the sun has had its chance. <laughs> So it's interesting as a listener, I can hear what people say and the meaning they give to it. And I just switch it. That's what I found by love being a prodigal. I get the benefit from it. I mean, they do too, but I get it. And how would you describe the benefit? Like what, what is your experience? I mean, I know you've been talking about it already, but. My experience is that I get to touch people at a very deep level and give them a certain sense of empowerment from a trap that they may have been thinking of a bear trap that they've been dragging around their whole life and looking at life with a certain meaning to it. And that meaning then affects their relationships, their performance. And because I have the 2343, I have the social channel of the 1333, but then I get the revelation, you know, remembering, get the revelation, but then I can articulate it to them in a very simple way because I can find the metaphors that they can relate to. 
So the more people that I speak to, the more I'm seeing how different people are, how people are so differentiated and so profoundly lost because they think they've got to be like everybody else. And so there's a real challenge for them to accept their past as maybe a false representation of who they really are. But you kind of, as a prodigal, you dig in the past. You go right back there. So when I do human design readings, oftentimes, again, it's not me. It's, it's a frequency that moves through me and says, where do you want to start? Where do you want to start? Because every reading is different because I'll look at it and I'll say, whoa, Pluto, gate 44-3, failure to act when interfered with, Scorpio. So I'll say, okay, and I'll look everything that their, that their whole life is about dealing with what's perceived as interference, what's true interference, you know, how do they make decisions with this? So and then another person can come in with a 1222, forget Pluto, I'm going to look at what planets activate that channel, how important it is, and go from there. Everyone's different. And then I always will say, do you find this is so for you? And so I get more and more in an interactive because I'll say, I want to target this reading for your needs at this moment. Tell me something that's important to you right now. So then the listening triggers how to interpret the chart. I mean, the information's all there, but I know from being a listener that they have a certain readiness. And I love Stanislav Grof because when he did his, you know, psychiatric counseling with people, right before he retired in a podcast, he said that he had an astrologer who would always run people's charts. And if they didn't have a Pluto or Uranus aspect that showed that they'd be open to a deep exploration of the potential of transformation, he wouldn't go there. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't go there. Because I think what the most difficult thing is the prodigal is to realize that some people are not going to go there ever. You know, and so you do the human design. That's why the BG5 has a certain value because it's very it's very on the surface, beautiful yeah. graphics. I mean, Karen's so gifted at her visual representation of concepts. So it does help people who are not designed ever to go there. So that serves that level there. You know, it's the in vogue thing now for Instagram and for coaches and things like that. Oh, I'm a two four generator. <laughs> but they have great cleavage. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> you said it all right there, Barbara. <laughs> no, it's like, what a movie. Wow. <laughs> well, this is, a, this is a perfect segue because I've been working with human design for about 12 years and John's been for about six years. So we're, we're kind of like in the middle of things, I would say, in a way. It feels very much like being able to see, you know, some of our mentors and teachers and people who've had the, you know, the kind of experience and longevity and experience with Ra and the origins of the teaching. And then, and then just to see the way things have exploded now with the younger population and how human design has just taken off. And all the time, we're just like, wow. So like, maybe you can share what, what was it like to find human design when you did what that experience was like in the beginning? And then how you reflect on everything, seeing where it's come to now. That's a big sandwich. It was interesting because I had been a cult interventionist before I met Ra. 
And I had worked with Herb Rosedale at the New York Family Foundation and was trained by this Dr. Kumarande and Herb in terms of cults and cult intervention because I had been in a cult for a few years not knowing it. What happened is many of the new age teachers create cults because they have this very seamless presentation. I'm here to empower you. You're special if you work with me. And so what happens is the carrot is you're special and I'm going to empower you, but slowly they disempower you. Similar to what's going on in the world now. In other words, they censor certain refined points in spiritual teachings, which are necessary to have the full understanding of the truth that's being presented. So when I was doing cult interventions, I ended up sponsoring Eckhart Tolle in New York City. And I met him right after The Power of Now was published. Intense frequency, very much a non-dualist. And profoundly changed over the next three years traveling with him. And simultaneously, I met Ed Stanton, who was a major student of Ra's. Before I met Ra, I met Ed. And I was very interested in esoterics. I've been in the movement since the 60s on college campuses. Uh, I was in the East Village in 67 when it was being flooded from heroin, pot, everything from Nam. And when I was with a friend of mine, we had done a forgiveness workshop in New York City on Friday night, and this was around Christmas of, uh, of 2002. And we made this pact, it was a ritual. Rituals are very important to end something and begin something new. And we said, we will never take another new age workshop and deal with any priest, high priestess, guru again, because we said the truth is in ourselves, we're done. So the next day we go to the New York City Center for a Christmas party and my friend was a top a Freudian psychologist in the city. So she was invited, she knew a lot of people. And I sat down next to this person called Peter Roth. And he said, oh, I just have this system for genetically decoding your imprint. And I said, sign me up. So my friend was so upset with me because we had just <laughs> So I went to Peter and then she said, all right, then I'm gonna go. And so he did a reading. And then all of a sudden about two weeks later, my friend called me up and said, Ed is having a workshop in Martha's Vineyard. Do you want to go? And out of my mouth came yes. And my way of making decisions is what I say, listening to what I say. And I'm very surprised oftentimes what I say. So I went with her up to Martha's Vineyard. It was fabulous. There are about 12 of us. Ed was always high. It was very shamanic because there was absolutely no order in the teaching. I mean, we'd go from circuits one day to... Uh, the cross of life the next day, then we go into the solar plexus. There was no real organization, but it was wonderful because there was something in the way that he taught. He was very kind, very loving, huge experiential scenery in his life. And it, it aroused in me, I had to keep going. And then I went to Sedona the next year and saw Ra, and he was in a class in Sedona and he was doing the mystic your mystical teachings and some other classes. And then after that, I just, he went online because before there was no online. You'd calculate your own birth chart, it was just coming up on the computer. A lot of the subjects that he taught, he was still unpacking the information in a more concrete and deeper way. I remember when we were in Sedona, he had the overhead projector and then there would be a problem and he'd say, okay, let's 
let's have a break, 30 minute break, is there are three in the room, you know, because they, you want the technology to be changed or improved or, or fixed. And so it gave me a real experience of his energy. But again, he was a manifester. I could feel those triggers. And I was also concerned it could be a cult because I was always looking that people so easy want to give their power away. Sure, I'll get vaccinated. Sure, I'll go to this. I'll go to this. Because they're always thinking that there's a power greater than them. So I was always hesitant because I'd done studies on inner circles around uh, gurus, teachers. The inner circle is always those who want to feel better about themselves because they're close to the teacher. And then usually they take the teaching and run off and do their own thing and don't credit the teacher, you know? And then you have a few people that end up as the dragon ladies or dragon men to protect the teacher. So I knew that whole scene. So I kept my distance, but I loved his, he was funny. He was very sacrilegious. And what I realized when I got in his first online classes, it was in 2005 and he, uh, launched the LYD, he the cycles, uh, the family practice, and one other course. And I remember took all of them, and then I started doing the rave psychology and the holistic, all of them online, because it was too expensive for me at that time to always fly to Ibiza. But what I realized is that as the classes progressed, he was sharing more information, more in depth, more nuances, which for me as a projector, you know, was fabulous. And when I had my first reading with Ra, which was 2000, I think, two, 2003, it was interesting. He had said that I was born on his birth date, projected birth date. And he was born April 9th. I was born May 4th. So he was a preemie. And I had run his astrological chart. And I could say, whoa, born on that birth date at that time was incredible, you know, because his midheaven, I think, was conjunct spica, you know, the, the fixed star. And of course, he was born under Difta, that's, which was true. So anyway, what happened was during that course, I realized, and he said that we were both conditioned by the other planets and certain ways of seeing things. And I think this is why I've stayed so close to Ra's teachings, not a need to revamp it, revise it, put new words in it, because literally it's almost impossible for me because we're programmed in a certain way. So similar to Rive, Saturn, Seventh Gate, Line 3, which is the anarchist. And I can understand it. It doesn't feel like an anarchist to me, but there's certain qualities that I don't think you can change. When I took the classes with Bra, I just felt so comfortable with all the teachings because they flowed through very easily. And I had a very, very, very quick deconditioning process in the first seven years because it just impacted me. Now, it was interesting because I came in with Rod during the Kiran return. I got a very full reading very quickly about my cycle and where I was. And in this cycle, I went from a 2-4 to a 6-3. So for me, as a projector, it was very helpful because he said, I don't know what to do with this. He said, I don't know if you're going to fall into it or avoid it. He said, but it's a dramatic change in you. And it, it certainly was. But my experience with the other readings that I had with Ra, similar to John, what you had said earlier, was it was a dramatic shift in understanding how my energy worked or how the life force moved through me. And I saw the world so differently. And it was very, very powerful because at the time I was acting as a contractor, renovating old homes in Connecticut. I was a real estate agent. I was teaching yoga 
and I was doing astrological readings. And I said, well, what do I do? He said, you're cute. And he said, you'll have to give it all up. And it was interesting. What struck me most about Ra was he was just a deliverer of truth. He didn't really care how you accepted it. He was not a therapist. He was not someone who was particular about how you felt about him. And that anger and that decisiveness would come right through. And so that's what I like too, because when I got into his practice, he didn't coddle people, but he was very respectful. Where I realized at some point in the deconditioning that human design was not a cult, but it can be turned into a cult by people who are not truly self-empowered. Now it becomes a cult where people get dressed in white, sit on a cushion and point out to people, you're this, you're this, you're this, and I'm telling you this. That's when it turns into a cult because you disempower people, you're elevated, they're down below you. But the beauty of inherent within the body itself, it's filled with paradoxes and dilemmas because you have two gates, they come together and the opposites now are synthesized. So we call that a strength and we call that a channel. And so it, it is a paradox where you have two simultaneous truths that oppose each other. So you have to have a higher truth that embraces them, that transcends them. So you can see from the chart itself, it's not about being special. It's just showing your uniqueness. Mm -hmm. And when you live the uniqueness, specialness is not an issue. You know, it's not an issue. It's like, why do I want to be special? In fact, that's a whole ego trip in that way. So as soon as I had this light bulb that it was not a cult, but it could be used as a cult, that's when I really started studying and involving myself more deeply because Bernays, who came over, you know, worked with Hitler and Freud's nephew, he was the master of conditioning through marketing. So as soon as I understood the power of conditioning and human design also said that nurturing is more powerful than nature, called it the not self, that it made me understand, whoa, have I been conditioned or not? And it gave me a, a jumping off point to find how can I really stop my therapy sessions? <laughs> how can I not keep seeking for all these gurus? And it was really going right down into my decision-making and having the, I'm going to have to say courage, that things would not be the same. And the image of, that I had of myself would have to change. And there'd be a lot of sadness. That's where the sadness comes in. A lot of saying, but why can't I do this? Why can't I do that? It's not really a grieving process, but it's kind of a bitterness mixed with how come I didn't win the gene pool lottery? Why did I end up as a projector? You know, why can't I do all this? So it would bring a lot of questions. And then I would say the real beauty of it all is you let go of the perceptual mandate that you must be a certain way. And every society has a perceptual mandate. In other words, oh, you have to do this, you have to wear a mask, or you don't have to wear a mask, or don't get the shot, or get the shot. In other words, you always have the binary out there. So people are caught in the binary. And when I realized human design is a transcendent function from the binary, and that clue is repeated through the chart, through the gates coming together, transcend. The conscious and unconscious binary, transcend. The detriment and exaltation, you know, transcend that opposition. And you don't have to be pulled to one side or the other. And that was a, a great awakening for me to understand how I preferred to be on one side. Because then 
I could reinforce the rightness of who I was, you know, puff myself up with puffery, you know, I'm this. So there is a leveling process in this whole deconditioning. And I feel that a lot of people lose that because they get to one state and say, okay, I'm a human design analyst, this can enhance the image of myself. And instead of viewing it very lightly as saying, no, you're carrying an intelligence that wants you to express, you know, this experience in a certain way. That's why I was so grateful. And because I was born in 1948, and I was, you know, very close to birth time to both Ron Eckhart. That's why I think I met them. I didn't seek out to meet them. I had no, uh, like, I have to meet them. It, I, I literally, interesting, I bumped into them because now I was a 6'3". So I bumped into both of them. I wasn't called. And it was a real adventure. And what was interesting is I bumped into them when Pluto was in Sagittarius. And it trined my natal Pluto in Leo. And plus Jupiter was fueling that trine. So it was interesting, even the timing of that. So that was kind of my experience of getting into it, where it was very shamanic, random, nothing. And then all of a sudden, the classes started. And then everything became very structured. So I loved it. It was a circus. So it's making me think of how intense it can be for projectors going through the deconditioning process, that it can have a really powerful impact on relationships because mm -hmm. relationships are such a central focus for, for many projectors. Mm -hmm. Can you speak to that a bit, what you've seen and what you've experienced in terms of projectors going through the deconditioning process and mm -hmm. how that affects relationships? I think that on the highest viewpoint, and you know the existential question that projectors have is, will anybody notice me? Please notice me. I gotta be noticed. That that is the most difficult aspect in relationships because projectors have to be noticed. There's something inside of them that values their worth based on do people notice me? Do they wanna hear me? Whatever. So that's, that's an inherent dilemma that a projector has, which is challenging. The second dilemma is because they're so focused, they can be very intense in relationships. So they have to be invited or recognize someone to see if they can withstand a constant intensity, not for a projector, but for a generator or for a manifester or reflector. The projector's intensity is their need to penetrate. And because many of my friends are generators, Sometimes they'll welcome me in and other times I can sense, oh no, don't go there, the timing. Now, I didn't know that at first. Before I knew I was a projector, I would just barge right in. It's like, you know, a two-year-old, a toddler throwing the door open and coming into the bedroom when you shouldn't. You know, it's like, okay, whoops, we've got a problem here. So the idea that you're the queen or king of unsolicited advice is part of the deconditioning process but it also has you overcome the bitterness of rejection. And maybe you undervalue yourself because the wrong timing has been expressed through that insight you had in that person. So in relationships, the projector has to understand if they're in a different type relationship, that they're very different. And if they were the generator, the generator can say, what, you don't wanna sleep with me tonight? Or what, you can't keep up with me? or what you don't want to climb to the top of the mountain. Now, the projector to begin with can appear to be just like that generator and really keep up. 
And then eventually all of a sudden there's an autoimmune problem or there's a psychological problem. And at that point, if they don't know the dynamic, there can be a real problem in the relationship. Then we move into the victimizer and the victim and judgment. And so I've seen that play out quite a bit. Oftentimes projectors wanna be with generators because it's so sexy, all that energy. And it's hard for projectors to accept that it goes back to they feel bitter because they feel as though their life is less than because they have to be invited in, because they have to be one-on-one, because they can't keep up with the generator energy. And it's because they're still in the deconditioning process and they can't be aware of what it is to really be a projector and to understand energy and how to read energy in a different way. And see, this is where the mind comes in because a projector wanting to be seen signs up for coaching classes. I'm going to do this, 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 and they don't have the energy to sustain it over time. And so I think the most painful thing in relationships for a projector is accepting that the relationship will only work if they come into their own. They've got to come into their own. They've got to know their design. They've got to know how they are designed to see their diet, their best location, and then they'll have the right partner and it can be very good. Otherwise, the projector will remain locked in this not-self prison and then probably be a fabulous therapist because they'll be constantly repeating stories. Now, what's interesting about both Eckhart and Ra, they're my major teachers, were that they both said, Eckhart said, give up the story. There's no end to it. Don't go back. And Ra would say, give up the story. It's decision-making one after the other that begins to bring that life force through you in a clean way because your mind has been too conditioned. And so they both said it. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's the most difficult thing for a projector because of the timing. Because of the timing, it takes a while. And I know in my own life, you know, I'm pretty stubborn. You know, I'm designed, you know, as a tourist, <laughs> pretty stubborn or determined, depending on which polarity one you look at. <laughs> that it took me seven years to really get into my diet. And it took me probably seven years to get into my environment. And this is when I was over 50. So I would say projectors more than any other type really have to know their type in a relationship or it's gonna be unhealthy for them and it's going to get that bitterness on steroids. That's why it's so fortunate that you're in a projector to projector relationship because you don't have that pressure on you. Yeah, I can relate with so much of what you just, how you just described it. The early life experiences like we were touching on earlier and uh, just the level of conditioning that I wasn't aware of and, until really until you have a different point of reference until it's either coming up and coming out or you're able to kind of look at things a little bit differently, have a different experience. It was perfect what you just said there. You have a different experience of your life and then everything changes. Mm-hmm. But if you feel locked in that the experience must be this way, it's got to be this way. You never step out of it to get the tunis. And Bucky Fuller always spoke about tunis. You need two. You know, one is just one. What do you compare it to? And the beauty of that comparison is it's comparative thought in your own life to compare one state to the other. You're not comparing your value by, oh, if only I were manifester, I'd be better. You know, that's where the comparative thought gets really bad if you could say, or let's say ineffective, whereas being able to look at your own, oh, I'm a new experience, I'm seeing things in a new framework. And I experience where, where there's kind of a friction, where you're moving from a new awareness 
to another as a projector because it keeps on going. There's a point where I don't want to give up and I can see that it's moving me to see differently and let go of something. And I'm like, I'm not ready. <laughs> don't. And I go into breathing and I wait and then I slip through the door and I say, well, this is so much better. But all that not self and that, that concretized thought patterning, when it's released, there's an echo chamber there and it talks louder and in the deconditioning process, and probably, Amy, you experienced it that seven years, there's a quickening at the end of the seven years before you go in the next cycle, and things just let go. But there's a poignancy, because, of course, we identify with who we've been. A therapist will call it a psychological death. I prefer to just say, vibrating out of that movie, <laughs> you know, raising, this, raising the curtain, let's put it down. <laughs> It sounds like we're talking about transference, like with the minds comparing and contrasting and needing a point of reference. How do you see that coming up in terms of the deconditioning process, looking at transference? I would say that there's literal transference that like would be with the motivation. You know, that where, because I have a personal view versus a power view. So both of them kind of work together, but it's always switching, knowing that the personal view rules rather than, you know, the power. So they're, they're never totally separate. They're always working. So if we look at, let's say, the two-ness of everything, that not-self, I always call as the harmony to the melody of your imprint, of your beautiful imprint, the true self. And so depending on how that harmony is released, you either have dissonance or you have this beautiful warmth and complement to the melody. And so the deconditioning process can get very distorted because you don't want to go to the melody. You're in the harmony. There's distortion here. You're comfortable with it. You identify with it through grace. It's the only thing I can say through grace or through your design. You begin to hear the melody. You begin to hear it just slightly. And then that begins the rebalancing process. You're walking in the woods and all of a sudden you hear a bird. And something about the frequency, you see everything very differently. And I think that's the trigger where the transference from the not self rule in your life to begin to emerge into the true self, that begins to happen. I love what you said, John, about the transference. I never thought about it that way. Mm -hmm. But I can see it's, it's almost a handoff where this distortion then begins to become the wisdom. And you can let go of what's the one that's gate 47, the third line, oppression, eventually you realize you're okay. <laughs> you're okay. You know, it's like you've been this restricted and adverse state for years. And then all of a sudden you hear this melody, wait, it's okay. Maybe this is me. You know, so that's why I would say the transference or the handoff, you know, and then it becomes more of a balancing and then you go into this beautiful, you know, harmony. I love the way you're describing that. Yeah, I'm trained as a musician, so it, it it just came to me. But thank you, John. You stimulated me with that question. <laughs> this is a projector to projector. It's like, okay, let's go down and down and down deep. <laughs> what have you seen in terms of just the evolution of the knowledge over this time? You know, we were we were starting to joke about how the reach of human design has changed, just mm -hmm. given the nature of, of communications now. Mm -hmm. I'm laughing here. I'm going to give the metaphor because I'm in real estate. And what I love about the metaphor is when developers are selling a project and there's a lot of money on it, they hire gorgeous women 
with great bodies, big smiles, because people remember that first experience of walking into the project of youthful vitality, sexuality. Uh, oh, this is my experience. Okay, sign in the contract. <laughs> you bought this condo. <laughs> you know, that it's the messenger. And if you look at the Greek gods, they always knew that Mercury was the best messenger because he could take the form necessary to get the message to the people. So the way that I look at the way human design is going, it's going to go on different fractals. And each fractal is going to need its own kind of messenger. And for some people to even know that there's something called human design and that there's actually energy types or ways to be, and it can certainly help the coaching community because they're not going to rah, rah, rah projectors. You know, otherwise they're going to get one star on the Google reviews <laughs> rather than five. So there, there's an emphasis there and it's similar to a swimming pool. Now you've got the wading pool out there where certain people can wade and whatever. And then you've got the very deep end of the pool, you know, with a high diving board. So I view the human design information being disseminated perfectly along the fractal. And what I find fascinating is many of the new gurus from the human design information, they're altering it. They're altering it and putting new, weaving different things in it in a way that's diluting it, that's losing the efficacy, that's losing the frequency. And what I love about the frequency of Ra's transmission is I can feel the energy. And you look at Sanskrit, you know, how the, the words that they use describe the frequency. I would say in the English language, the closest would be murmur, you know, murmur, murmur, murmur. That's a word that really describes whatever. So I find that I love Ra's teachings just because the frequency, that's, that's the best I can say. And it's interesting when I sponsored Eckhart in New York City and I picked up the power of now, I opened the book and there was a frequency that really engulfed me. And I said, I got to know this person. So again, I would say that I'm fine with everybody doing everything, but I always say beware of what you're taking in because everything has limitations. And I would also say that you learn from a projector, you learn from a manifesto, you learn from a generator, everyone has their own filter. So it's really important to know, you know, the imprint of the teacher that you're working with because they're designed to disseminate the information in that particular way. And I remember when after Rob passed, there was a gathering in Sedona and I loved it because Alok was there and Randy was there and Leela and Darman and everybody was there and Marianne and they were all doing different segments and they all presented it differently based on who they were. And I remember Randy, he was a stitch. He would be just funny. And again, the beautiful thing about Randy is his experience, you know, with drugs, with AA, things like that, that empowered him to work with people in a very different way. And I know I sent some people over to him that I was hoping that they would break the alcohol syndrome. You know, and, and sure enough, I knew if I sent him to Randy, he would be able to get them on their path. And he was beautiful like that because he would say in the meetings that he would go to in the 12-step program, people would say, hey, you're, why are you doing this? It's 30 years. You're in human design. Why are you doing this? And he said, no, I view the meetings as a botanical garden. You know, I'm not sure when a flower, you know, a flower will bloom. And that's sort of why I like human design, because you don't know when you're going to bloom. And yet within the whole cycles of the Kiran return, that's the flowering. That's when you really bloom. And so 
the teachers that people go to, they're going to have their unique experience of the material, but how it's interpreted. And this is the challenge here. If profit goes over excellence, then you've got a problem. And so I noticed sometimes people will price things very high um, for their sessions and they have a right to charge 700, charge 375. I just look at it, they're designed to do that 20 minute reading 375. Okay, great, that's okay. It's the market, what the market it will bear. And then there are others that are designed differently that will be directed more to you know, get the information out. And the one thing that Ross said, I thought was critical, he said money is holy. If he didn't charge high prices for human design, it would never go out there in the world. And so there was a, an awareness of the need to charge a fair value. The markets are funny because they will show over time the durability of a product, of an event, whatever it is. And so each person, almost as you come into you know, the essential nature of your design, you'll structure your teaching very differently based on your awakening into the practice. And that's going to be the difference. Touched on something that Amy and I have been looking at a lot, which is how we're always filtering however we're transmitting or we're working with someone or communicating through our own definition. And I see this pattern come up again and again in myself where, and I'll see it in other people, but I can really see it firsthand where I'll take my definition for granted. I'll just assume like, oh, this is just the way it is. And everyone must be that way. And you get into that kind of comparison thing where there's something lacking or wrong. If the other person doesn't show up, like in my case with an ego and, you know, that sort of consistency, but going back to what you were saying about some of these teachers who are out there on these different fractals, we've been looking for their charts. We've been trying to find their charts. We can't find their birth data. And it's just so curious to me where, you know, if Amy and I are teaching a class, one of the first things that we'll do is we'll put our charts up there and say, this is the filter that you're getting right now. You're getting two projectors. This is our definition. Just keep that in mind. It's just interesting when, when you don't have that access or that awareness. Mm -hmm. I think if I may speculate in any condition like that, the one area <clears throat> where Ra was very direct was his time of birth, very open with his chart, not hiding anything, not worrying about what people would do it. He used it as a teaching tool. So my feeling is that, and this is only my feeling, that if some teacher hesitates to share their chart, then they have an ego position within the information the strong egoic and identity to that information. And if you don't, and you put your chart out there, there's a more of an openness to say, this is how I'm to channel a unique energy expression of the one mind, of the consciousness field, of the quantum, of God, of the higher power, whatever word you wanna put on it. And you're not personalizing it. You're just saying, whoa, this is my movie, how's yours? Right. Instead of saying, oh, this is my identity. I don't want you to know that I might have a weakness here or that I might have a detriment there. And that's their trip, which is interesting because I have found that as well too. The chart's not out there. Mm -hmm. It's hidden. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a curious thing. <laughs> that's the only reason, again, because I come from the filter of doing cult interventions. Yeah. Someone who's the teacher, if they take the rule of the authority, because I'm a two, gate two, line two. I love the third line because it's patience. It's a teacher whose students excel them. 
in other words, when you are sharing as a teacher and you're sharing your own design, you hope your students transcend you. That's the name of the game is evolution. So show your chart, show where you're open, show the detriments because that gives people hope that you're that open and you're detaching from your conception of yourself and see how the movie runs. Because I've been in very different prisons throughout my life and broken free, I'm very particular to observe that as you have, where's their chart? But again, that's a projective quality because we want to go deep right. and we actually want to see. <laughs> Who is this Who person? Who are you? Because <laughs> as I said, with projectors, you go down deep. So if you don't have the chart, there's is this the not self or is this the true self? Which is operating from here? If you have an open ego, is that why you're on an elevated pedestal in front of everybody? Or if you have a defined ego, are you, you know, showing your chart? You know, here, here it is. No problem here. I just marvel at this wonderland that we're in to see all the different variations that human design is taking. <laughs> Ra's early classes, you know, were very small. And now millions. When I sponsored Eckhart, we had 30 people in the room. That was it. And now there mil 45 million have, have watched his stuff. So you can see that the seeds have been planted, but then it goes all along. I think there's 66 fractal lines. And I'm happy to be on your fractal. <laughs> well, us too. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's great to hear your perspective. As we're closing up here, can you share with us what's the focus of your work now? Like, what are you available for? Um, how do you work with people currently? I'm very concerned about coming to 2027, and I'm very concerned about the brainwashing that's going on. The fact that $4 billion was spent to convince people to make a choice through humiliation, through all different psychological ways. It's terrifying to me. I feel like I'm in the twilight zone. So my work is to reach as many people as my energy can sustain. So I love one-on-one -on -one personal overviews because I'm able to help people make decisions, empower them, because right now they've got to make decisions as themselves or else they're gone. They're, they're literally gone. And we know that Rob predicted this in 2027, that there'd be a huge drop in the population, that systems are breaking down. And if they don't know how to make decisions, they don't have the armor that they're gonna to need to navigate this confusion. And this is really confusion because couples are breaking up, families are breaking up, you know, it's, and the, you could say the not self or the program or whatever is creating all these divisive forces. That's a long way to say, I have not given up personal, you know, one-on-one -on -one sessions with people. I also teach, you know, basic LYD rave cartography and rave ABCs. And I also do business mastermind groups because I find that most people are remote now. The aura of five groups no longer holds true. And it's going to be more and more. So in the business mastermind groups, I'm actually working with one of my students whose birth is 1990. So it's interesting. We have the beginner's mind and the, you know, the older mind. The beauty of this is that we're working with how do you create a business that's effective in this changing world based on your type, based on the cycle you're in, based on how mercury works, based on you know open areas, based on my experience with BG5, I had to make that more effective because companies aren't gonna have you come in. Mm -hmm. So I'll work more or less with people who run their small companies. Why? Because mom and pop and small entrepreneurial 
companies are under attack now. They want to be swallowed up. So a lot of my work in the mastermind group is to empower people to effectively run their business based on human design, you know, principles, whether they're not self or true self, we can put both of them into play so they can be more effective. So that's what I do now is kind of a mix. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, we would love to have you back <laughs> at some point there. We have many more questions for you. Okay, great. We'll have the lemonade. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for the invitation. This has been great. And it's so great to meet you, Amy. Oh, John, I remember you, you turned your head slightly. I was with Keith down on that corner of Burnett and uh, 45th. That's right. Name of that. Yes. Uh, Stinson's. Stinson's. Yes. So it's great to meet you virtually again. And I hope yes. that aura can happen. Yeah. Yeah. I hope so too. Well, this has been a lot of fun and yeah. I feel like we could keep going, but yeah. <laughs> hopefully we can do another. Yes. Another date. Another. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Human Design Collective podcast. If you enjoy the show, please review us and share. You can find us at humandesigncollective.com and explore our course and workshop offerings at courses.humandesigncollective.com. Music for the Human Design Collective podcast is courtesy of Anders Parker. For more information, see the show notes. And please stay tuned for more upcoming episodes on the same channel. Be feared.